and uh, we are continuing our series in Colossians. So open your Bibles to Colossians. Uh, I believe it's page 1044. Is that right? Somebody who's there, tell me, am I right? Is it 1044? All right. Uh, and uh, we're in Colossians chapter 3, and we're just preaching verse by verse uh, through this. We've got uh, counting today three more weeks here in Colossians before we begin a series from the Old Testament in the book of Esther. Um, so today, covering verses 12 through 17, and talking about new creation living. New creation living. Let's, uh, let's read these verses. Can we read them together? If you're reading from the Bible in front of you, uh, then we'll all be reading the same thing. So it should be a little easy. So let's read it out loud together, nice and loud, uh, beginning at verse 12. You ready? Therefore, as God's chosen ones... Holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity, and let the peace of Christ to which you were also called in one body, rule in your hearts and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Are we ever going to stop talking about Jesus? That might be your natural question as we're amid a sermon series called Theory of Everything, where we're explaining how Jesus is our theory of everything. Perhaps you're still exploring what you believe, and to you, our discussions seem a little bit circular, because we start with Jesus, and then they keep ending up back at Jesus again. Seems a little odd. Perhaps you've already made a decision to follow Jesus, but you're ready to move on to more advanced doctrine, more weightier stuff. <clears throat> so you kind of sigh in your soul because here we are about to talk about Jesus and how he's the theory of everything one more time. Sometimes, especially to those who have walked with Jesus for a long time, focusing upon Jesus can seem simplistic. It's kind of like a cliched Sunday school answer. You know, when you're a kid in Sunday school, you're like, I don't know what the question is, but I know Jesus is the answer. And uh, sometimes as adults, we, we kind of like poo-poo that and make fun of that. We're like, we're going to grow up to be able to have more intelligent and more sophisticated Christian answers, more sophisticated answers than Jesus. But I'd like to suggest that whether you are still searching for faith or whether you've already surrendered to Jesus as your Lord, that we must never, ever fall into the trap of moving beyond Jesus. In fact, if you believe that we need to move on to more quote-unquote advanced matters, then you don't actually understand who Jesus is, and you don't understand what it means to be Christian. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul portrays Jesus as the clue that makes sense of the entire universe. The, the kind of rubric that explains every square inch of life. 
And so the rest of the letter, including this text right before us, flows out of what Paul said in chapter 1. He said Jesus explains everything. And in verses 17 and verse 20, he talks of of chapter 1, he talks about how all things are being reconciled in Jesus. It's It's a very grand and a very cosmic idea. And then Paul begins towards the end of the letter, what, Paul, what uh, Sean started preaching on last week. He starts drilling down on everyday ethics, how we live. But it never is detached from what Paul talked about in chapter 1. There is this grand, beautiful, transcendent vision of Jesus. And because of who he is and because of what he's done, it has this ripple effect into every square inch of life, including... The matters of everyday life, which is what's talked about in this text before us. You see, as uh, Paul here, he talks about what I'm calling new creation living. He talks about what it means to be a new creation. And he says uh, in chapter three that we have been made new. We are new creations. That's what he says in second Corinthians chapter five. We are new creatures or new creations in Christ. So together... We are called to new creation living. Together, as God's church, we are called to be a compelling sneak peek, kind of like a movie trailer. A movie trailer of the ultimate new creation that is going to come when Jesus comes back to establish his kingdom. But this new creation living is centered upon none other than Jesus. Because of who he is, Because of what he's done, we are able to live together as this new creation. And in this text, that means two things. Two very simple things. Following Jesus is not rocket science, all right? So two very simple things in this text that it means to center our lives upon Jesus and live as this new creation. And the first is to submit our church to the peace of Christ. And the second is to saturate ourselves with the word of Christ. So we submit to the peace of Christ. We saturate ourselves with the word of Christ. So let's look at verse 12. It says, Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Now before I get to the, the list of characteristics, compassion, kindness, it's a, really, it's a really exciting and compelling list. Probably everybody, even non-Christians, would agree that that's a good list. But before I get there... Uh, We need to talk about that first phrase. This is therefore, in other words, based on what we just talked about in the previous verses, I'm going to tell you something. Well, what was it that Paul had just talked about in the previous verses? Sean ended his sermon last week by talking about how in Christ we are all made new. And the previous verse says that in Christ there was not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. Everybody finds a place in Christ. When they come to Christ, he creates a new community. He creates a new family. He creates a counterculture. And we, whether we're slave or free, male or female, barbarian or elite or whatever, we find a place in Christ. That's what he's teaching us here in verse 11. And then he says, therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, Put on these characteristics. So what he's saying is, look, here's what Jesus has done to form a family. Here's what Jesus has done to create one new humanity out of the rubble 
and the wreckage of humanity, where we have been at odds with one another ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. The very first thing that human beings did was they turned upon one another. Adam and Eve started bickering, then they had kids, and their kids started killing one another. And that's pretty much what human beings have been doing ever since. But Jesus forms a new humanity out of that rubble, out of the ashes of humanity, and he makes something New, a new creation that's made up of neither Greek or Jews, circumcision or uncircumcision. It's got barbarians and Scythians, slaves and free, because Christ is all and in all. He is the focal point of this new creation. And therefore, we are a part of it. And it says that we are God's chosen ones. Now, sometimes when Christians grapple with this idea of being God's chosen ones, there's some different extremes that we can fall into. Sometimes, People can, can argue about, hey, we are the chosen ones and other people are not. So in other words, God chose me to go to heaven and God chose you not to go to heaven. Um, and people have these sorts of arguments and I think that they usually totally miss the point. Because what I believe that Paul teaches here and in a number of other New Testament letters is that Jesus is the chosen one. Christians are chosen in him. This is not a, this is not a discussion about who's in or who's out, except to say that if you're in Jesus, you're in, and if you're not in Jesus, you're out. That's what it's saying. Jesus is the chosen one. He is the one who has been, uh, if you want to use a, a fancy word, a doctrinal word, he is the one who has been elected by God, and we are elected in him. We are his chosen ones, holy and dearly loved. And the point of our choosing the point of the fact that we find our place in this new humanity, the whole point of it is so that we live this kind of lifestyle. If you're excited about the fact that you're chosen, but you're not willing to put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, if you're not willing to put away the sexual immorality and impurity and lust and greed and malice and anger and wrath, if you're not willing to live out the ethics of this passage then I would suggest that maybe we should stop being so excited about the fact that we were chosen. Some Christians like to puff out their chests and brag about being, we are the chosen ones. I am only chosen because I'm in Christ, because I have put my faith in him and therefore I am included in this new humanity. And the point of my chosenness is that I am called to live a different kind of lifestyle. Being chosen by God should never lead to a spirit of triumphalism or arrogance or pride. But it should always lead to, according to this verse, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. That's the point. That's what this is all about. We are chosen in Jesus and we are chosen for his mission of bringing reconciliation to the, to the world through the new humanity called the church. But then we get to this list, this list that probably most people would like, right? Whether you're a Christian or whether you're Muslim or Buddhist or whether you're atheist, probably everybody would say this is a pretty good list. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another. That means putting up with one another, uh, forgiving one another, um, above all, put on love. I mean, this is good stuff. Uh, and everybody is going more or less, to like this. But as we all know, the challenge is actually in living it out. Because who's going to say, oh, I don't believe in love. I don't believe in humility. I don't believe in patience. I don't believe in kindness. Like, we know we can't say that out loud, but we struggle to actually live it out. 
But what Paul says is because we are chosen to be part of this Jew-Gentile community, this, this reconciled family of faith, we are to live out this new reality as this new creation. And this is what it looks like. New creation living looks like compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, putting up with one another and forgiving one another. It looks like loving one another. Verse 15 kind of sums up the whole list. It says, and let the peace of Christ to which you were also called in one body rule your hearts and be thankful. The peace of Christ to which we have been called rules over us. You see, um, it's the it's the peace of Christ. I think it was referenced earlier in the book. It talks about how Jesus makes peace through his cross. It's a bloody metaphor. It's a violent metaphor that Jesus has to die on a cross at the hands of a Roman sword. He has to die a bloody death in order to bring peace between humans and God and between humans and their fellow humans. And it's this act of violence that puts us into a new family. So it's like one of the problems that they had in the ancient world was that, that Jews and Gentiles didn't get along. They didn't get along with barbarians and they didn't get along with Egyptians. Egyptians were always like at the bottom of the totem pole in the, uh, in the ancient world. Nobody liked the Egyptians. And so here's, here's one of the ways that God fixed the problem. He said, all right. You're barbarian, you're slave, you're free, you're male, you're female, you're Egyptian, you're Jew, you're Gentile. Here's how I'm going to fix this. Here's how I'm going to make peace. I'm going to put you in the same family. Because when you're family, you've got to figure out how to work it out. You might have that crazy uncle at the Thanksgiving meal that you, you get mad at and you storm into the other room. But at the end of the day, you come back. And you sit back down because you're family. And that's what Jesus does. He says, I am going to reconcile these diverse people groups and these different classes and, and men and women. I'm going to reconcile them by reconciling them to God. And then that brings about reconciliation between people. And he does that by creating this new group that lives out this new creation life. And when the peace of Christ governs our relationships... We end up looking like compassionate people, kind people, humble people, gentle people, patient people. This is what Christians should be known for. Now, I know maybe you could, you could argue we should be known for some other things like what we believe about Jesus, and that's certainly true. I'm not saying that. But this, is, should, this should be right at the top of the list. If they're like, what are Christians known for at Mosaic? I hope they say Oh, those people are some of the most compassionate, kind, humble, gentle, patient, putting up with one another and forgiving one another kind of people we've ever met. That's new creation living. And it only happens when we submit to the peace of Christ in our church, when we allow his peace and what he has accomplished for us at the cross to unite us together and to reconcile us. And so when we're beefing with one another, as will happen in any family, that we always come back and we always reconcile because the peace of Christ is something that we have chosen to submit to. And it produces this new creation lifestyle. Now, uh, I said that we're going to break up into groups. I'm going to do something a little different that we don't normally do in, uh, in sermons, but I want to make this interactive. So here's what we're going to do. Um, we keep saying that Jesus is our theory of everything. And from A to Z, it's all about Jesus. 
And that's because that's really the heart of Colossians. That's what this book is all about. It's about Jesus. So what we're going to do is we're going to break up into groups. And I'm going to assign different groups each of these characteristics. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forgiveness, and love. And I'm going to ask you to spend several minutes finding a story from one of the four Gospels. That's Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. If you don't know how to find them in the Bible, you can look in the table of contents at the front of that, that black Bible on the chair. And with the two or three people closest to you, find a story in the Gospels where Jesus demonstrated that characteristic and talk about it together and what you can learn from it. Then I'll bring us back together uh, to go into our second and final point, point of the sermon. Okay? So, um, Sean and JJ, <clears throat> I want you guys to uh, find a story in the Gospels that talks about compassion. Okay? So you're, that's what you're looking for. Uh, and there might be more than one, okay? Um, Mom, Katie, um, you're looking for kindness. Something in the Gospels where Jesus was kind. On the back row, our Tommies and Rowena, can we do humility? Something in the Gospels where we see that Jesus is a person of humility. Uh, let's see. One more. One, two, three, four. Is there anybody else behind the poll? Okay. Patrick and John. Uh, why don't we do gentleness? So you guys, yeah, John, Patrick, Patrick, John. Okay, so you guys are looking in the four Gospels for a story that illustrates the gentleness of Jesus. The gentleness of Jesus. Um, Sonia um, and, sorry, what was your name again? Yes. Misha? Okay. And Danielle, the three of you ladies, uh, can do patience. You're looking for something uh, in the Gospels that illustrates the patience of Jesus. Two ladies in the middle, we're going to do forgiveness. Yes, that's you guys. All right, how did Jesus demonstrate forgiveness? And then the back row, uh, we are going to do love. Okay? So uh, I know it, on some of these may be easier and some may be harder. But what I want you to do is to take about 10 minutes, find a story, and talk about how we can apply it to our lives. All right? Go for it.
different. All right, let's uh, let's bring it back together here. So um, I'm not going to ask every group to uh, to share, but are there any groups that would like to volunteer and say, "Hey, we saw something so cool about Jesus, and we feel like we could apply it um, in our lives." Is there anybody? Monique and Ronis. Tell us your characteristic. What, what? Forgiveness. Forgiveness, okay? Yes. So nice and loud. Tell us uh, tell us whatever's on your heart. So from the story that we we found, which is Mark two versus Mark one through twelve. And it's the story of the paralytic. Okay. the thousands, one he feeds the 5,000, and one he feeds the 4,000. It's two different stories. 
The 5,000 are Jews, the 4,000, he's in Gentile territory there. And so this whole thing, he arranges it specifically to demonstrate, not only do I have compassion toward my fellow Jews, but I have compassion toward those that the Jews view on the outside. There's, there's also a reading that the 4,000 is only counting the households. Right, so it was probably, it was more, it was more than 4,000 people. Those were probably just the, just the men being counted. But they're Gentile men. They're people that are on the outside. And Jesus is like, no, I have compassion for you too. Sonia? Patience, okay. Danielle thought of Judas and Jesus' relationship with Judas and just knowing that he would betray him. Um, and, and in the midst of that, he showed compassion and, and patience in, in allowing him to stay in the circle and continuing mm. to show love to him. Um, and even in the very, very end when they, when Judas comes and sees Jesus for the last time and brings the mob of soldiers and temple guards and everything to come to come wrangle Jesus. Um, even in the midst of that, Jesus understands God's sovereignty and, and, and his patience toward Jesus. And so we we talked about that patience and you know we didn't get much into like the, the application, but I feel like None of us have been betrayed as bad as Jesus was betrayed by Judas. No matter no matter how bad you've been burned by someone, um, no one's no one sold you for you know as a death sentence um, for a few pieces of silver, and, um, and yet Jesus is still able to, to be patient. Mm. That's good. Okay, thanks for sharing, guys. So uh, I know some of you didn't share, but you probably learned things just as amazing. Um, you see, the reason why I wanted to go back to the Gospels is because I really do believe that Jesus is our theory of everything. I know I've been saying it and beating that drum ever since we started this series, but I actually believe it. I think it's true. And what Christianity is supposed to do is center itself and center all of life. Upon Jesus. I don't think we can talk about Jesus too much. So the first thing that we see in the first half of this passage is that in order to live this new creation kind of lifestyle, we have to submit our church, submit ourselves, submit our family to the peace of Christ. But the second thing that this passage shows us uh, is that we have to saturate our church family with the word of Christ. Saturate our church family with the word of Christ. I get this from verses 16 and 17. It says, let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So we're supposed to saturate our church with the word of Christ. What does that mean? Well, um, initially, when I read this, I assumed that what I was talking about was the Bible, um, because we call the Bible the Word of God, the Word of Christ. Um, and it is true that the Bible calls us to read the Bible. There are verses that say that we're supposed to do that. I don't actually think, after studying this verse, that that's what it's calling us to do. It's not so much that we're supposed to focus on the Bible. We're supposed to talk about Jesus. The Word – so it says, verse, um, verse 16, let the Word of Christ – a really good way to understand this 
as it was written, is let the words about Christ dwell richly among you. So what Paul is envisioning is a community that is constantly babbling, constantly chattering. There's this, there's this murmur about Jesus. There are these words about Jesus. They're having these gospel conversations amongst themselves all the time. They're doing it on Sundays when they come together. They're doing it as they scatter throughout the week. They are talking about Jesus and what he has done all the time. Because Paul's vision of Christianity is not a two-hour event on a Sunday, but it's of a people who are so transformed and shaped by Jesus that they are living under his lordship because he is their rightful king 24-7. And the evidence that they are living under his lordship is that they can't stop talking about Jesus. The word of Christ, these words about Jesus are dwelling richly among them in all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another. So that means that you and I have a responsibility to teach one another about Jesus. That's not just the pastor's job. That's your job. If you know something about Jesus, teach it to somebody else in the church. We have a responsibility to teach one another. The next verse, or the next word is a little bit stronger. It might make us a little uncomfortable. It says admonish. We're supposed to challenge. We're supposed to confront. We're supposed to exhort based on what Jesus has said and based on what Jesus has done. So our responsibility, not simply the pastor. Yes, it's part of my job, but it's our collective responsibility that we speak truth into one another's lives. What kind of truth? Not just whatever, you know, we saw on Dr. Phil or whatever we saw on Twitter or Instagram last night, but words about Jesus. That's, that's the point. We're calling each other to center our lives upon Jesus, upon who he is and what he has done. And because of what chapter one says and what chapter two says and all of this amazing stuff that Jesus has done, it flows out into the everyday ethics, the, the sexual immorality and the lying and the anger and the wrath that Sean preached against last week in the previous passage. Paul is like, because of who Jesus is, we don't do that. Instead, we do this. And so you and I have a responsibility. Part of saturating our church with the word of Christ means that we teach one another and we admonish one another. That's not just a from the pulpit thing. That's not just a when you're sitting in a circle at your missional family thing. That's a, that's a daily thing. Whether it's via text or whether it's over coffee, that we look one another in the eye because we love each other and we call each other to truth about Jesus. We teach we admonish the word of Christ dwells richly among us. And, and one of the ways that we know that the words of Jesus are dwelling richly among us is when we are characterized by joyful song. It says, um, admonish one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. So Paul, previously in the chapter, he's talked about what not to do. And you, you, you can probably look at someone and say, well, I can see that they're characterized by greed. I can see that they're characterized by lying or anger or immorality, these different things that he mentioned. But then convert, what's the converse? How do, you know, how do you know if you're filled with the Spirit? How do you know if the Word of Christ dwells richly among you? Well, I think he would say you're always talking about Jesus and you're characterized by a joyful song about Jesus. Now, what I'm not saying is you have to be good at singing because let's face it, some of us aren't. 
There's a reason I don't sing up here. Because I'm not good at singing. But is my life characterized by joyful expression of song? Do I spontaneously, throughout the week, hum songs of praise to Jesus? Or at least listen to something on Spotify, some praise and worship, because, because I am orienting my heart and my life and my soul around Jesus. I'm not saying Christian music is the only thing you can listen to. Don't, that's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is this is the evidence. This is, this is one of the evidences of what it means to be walking with Jesus, to be this kind of community that lives a new creation lifestyle. How do we know when we're living it? Well, we have the compassion and the kindness and the humility and all that stuff. And we can't stop talking about Jesus and we can't stop singing about it. And when that's the case, Paul says, yep, that's the new creation coming as, as, a, as a compelling sneak peek. The movie uh, trailer showing us what life in God's kingdom will one day be like. In, um, in his parallel passage in Ephesians, Paul says almost the same thing. Uh, but he contrasts it in Ephesians chapter 5. He contrasts it with alcohol. He says, don't be drunk with wine wherein is excess, but instead do this. Sing to one another. Be full of the spirit with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. What is he trying to do? He doesn't, he doesn't explain it this way in Colossians, but he explains it in Ephesians. He's like, some of you are struggling. You are under the influence of something else. And the Holy Spirit can't control you when you are controlled by something else. This is why Christians ought not get drunk. This is why Christians ought not do drugs, right? We're not supposed to be controlled by anything other than the Holy Spirit. But how do you know when you're controlled by the Holy Spirit? How do you know when you have put off the old man and put on the new man, to use Paul's term? Because he, he uses the imagery of clothes. You put off your old clothes and you put on the new clothes. The new clothes is Jesus. And when we put on the new clothes, we're no longer controlled by stuff like alcohol. That's not new creation living. New creation living is being controlled by the Spirit so that we have this this uh, singing and this joyful word of Christ. We can't stop talking about him. We can't stop singing about him because he is in control of our community. You tracking with me? So he mentions these different kinds of songs. Psalms, that was the Psalms. The, uh, the first Christians, they didn't have a <clears throat> Spotify. They didn't have Pandora. They didn't have gospel music. They had the Psalms from the Old Testament. And so they sang them. I don't know what the tune is. We don't know the tunes of, of most of the Psalms, but they sang them. They wrote uh, early Christian poetry from the first century. Like, for instance, in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20, it's an example of what most scholars think is an early Christian poem. And then they had these other songs that, that they were, as they were, as they were worshiping, spontaneous expressions of worship, they're singing together on Sunday mornings and throughout the week. There are these different kinds of songs and they're singing to God with gratitude in their hearts. They are people of joy. They are people of gratitude. They are people of thanksgiving because verse 17 says, whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. It's almost as if Paul is like, he's our theory of everything. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. We are to be a people who can't stop talking about Jesus and we can't stop singing about Jesus. So I've got two suggested next steps. Uh, I don't know if they're on the screen. Do we have them on the screen, Rachel? 
she's trying to hold a baby too. So uh, I've got, uh, got two suggestions here. First off, we fight for peace within the church. We fight for peace within the church. So these verses that we started with, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, all this stuff, it's talking about how we are to live in God's family. It starts within our own families. If you, if you are married, you have kids, you're, you should have peace in your home. But then broader than that, the Bible teaches that the real family, the family that trumps all families, is God's family. It's the church. And the coolest thing about coming to faith in Jesus is that we get a new family. We're part of this new humanity that is Jesus' family. And we are called to fight for one another. We fight for peace within the church. Sometimes it's going to mean the, the hard stuff of teaching and admonishing one another and looking one another in the eye and calling out sin. But it's going to mean a lifestyle of compassion, kindness, gentleness, putting up with one another, loving one another, forgiving one another. So my, my first challenge is that we would simply fight for peace in this church. We would fight for unity in this church. Let us not be characterized by the first half of the chapter, anger and lying and wrath and immorality and greed. Instead, let us be characterized by compassion, gentleness, kindness, forgiveness. We fight for unity. We fight for peace. Second, let's talk about Jesus. Let's sing about Jesus. Let's live for Jesus. I don't mind if people think I'm obsessed about Jesus. Because that's actually our heritage. You guys know where the name Christian came from? It goes back to Syria, actually. About 1940 years ago. There was a Syrian city called Antioch. And there were these refugees. They were Christians. They were refugees from northern Africa and the Mediterranean island of Cyprus. And these refugees were being persecuted by the Jewish government in Jerusalem. They were being persecuted for their faith. So these African and Mediterranean refugees showed up in a Syrian city called Antioch. And they began to share the gospel with people who were not like them. This was the first time in any significant way that this had ever happened. This was the first time that a church formed that included more than Jewish people. And it says in Acts chapter 11, it says there was the first time that Christians called Christians. And the, the wording of it um, makes it clear that they probably didn't think of that name for themselves. It's very common in ancient Antioch in this Syrian city that they like to label people, kind of like we do today. You know, you're Republican or you're Democrat. You're straight or you're gay, or you're this or you're that. Like, we, we have all of these labels, right? And back in Antioch, they did the same thing. You're Jewish, you're Gentile. You're Roman, you're barbarian. You're Egyptian, you're slave, you're male, you're female. They had all of these labels and they put everybody in boxes. But the people of Antioch looked at this church and they couldn't figure out what the box was. They were like, we see Africans. I mean, the church was started by African and Mediterranean refugees, but we see, we see Greek-speaking Gentiles who have been saved in the Syrian town. We got people from all over the known world who are part of this church. They don't have anything in common. Except they are obsessively, compulsively talking and singing about this guy named Jesus the Christ. So they said, we'll call them Christians. People of Christ. Followers of Christ. You see, our heritage is that what sets us apart from everybody else is that 
we are a people who are obsessed with Jesus the Christ. We really do believe that he's the theory of everything. We really do believe that he is the one who has transformed us and is in the process of transforming society and one day will transform the world. That's what we believe. The Christians were called Christians not because they had something in common. Their geopolitical views about the Roman Empire were all over the map back then. They probably couldn't sit down and agree on politics. They came from all of these different cultures, so they didn't eat the same food. They didn't like the same music. But they liked the same Christ. Christ just means king. They had the same king. They had the same Lord. The same Messiah. And so they were called Christians. People of King Jesus. So this is who we are. That's our heritage. We are people of Jesus the King. I know the name Christian has a lot of baggage and sometimes people don't like to use it. But I say let's, let's recapture the name, what it's supposed to mean. Let's rediscover our identity as the people of Jesus. Let's lean in to Jesus so we can fully participate in the beautiful new creation lifestyle that he offers and that he calls us to. Because we are people of Jesus. Not perfect. We're fully flawed. But we are being remade as verse um, 11 says, verse 10 says, we are being remade into the image of our creator. And Jesus is the one who is that image. Let's pray.